I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 54 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Everything has a beginning, and golf's major championships are no different. Oddly enough, three of our four major championships share the same month of inception. And if you are unfamiliar with this factoid, it may surprise you. What month did the majority of golf majors start in? If you guessed April, May, June, July, August, or September, you would be wrong. The answer, surprisingly, is October. On October 17th, 1860, eight men gathered to play three rounds on the 12-hole course at Presswick. It was the beginning of all major championships, with the inaugural Open champion being Willie Park Sr. 34 years later, on October 11, 1894, four of America's best professionals gathered to play our very first U.S. Open championship, which was hosted by the St. Andrews Golf Club in New York. The inaugural winner was Willie Dunn of Shinnecock Hills. A year later, on October 4, 1895, 11 golfers competed for the first USGA-sanctioned U.S. Open, which was played at Newport Country Club in Rhode Island. The first USGA-sanctioned U.S. Open winner, Horace Rollins, was a professional of the host club, Newport Country Club. Nineteen years passed, and once again, in the month of October, the first PGA Championship was held at Siwanoi Country Club in Bronxville, New York, on October 10, 1916. The inaugural winner was Long Jim Barnes. All four of the major championships I just mentioned, even the non-sanctioned USGA US Open, were billed as national championships, or as we would call them, major championships today. Each one of those four majors were in fact major championships at their genesis. And yet our fourth major, and some would say their favorite major, the Masters, is shrouded in a layer of gray. Many know that it was originally called the Augusta National Invitational, but how many know the story of the lost apostrophe? Everyone knows that it's a major, but nobody really seems to know when it became a major. Our guest today, golf researcher and founder of Thinking About Golf, Jeff Martin, joins the podcast with his research on the early tournaments at Augusta National their strengths of field, when the Augusta National Invitational became the Masters, and that story of that darn lost apostrophe. I could go on, but I know you'd rather hear it from Jeff, so let's dive into our interview. For those of you at home, we have Jeff Martin back on Talking Golf History. Jeff joined us back on episode 21, aptly called The Myths of Ben Hogan. Jeff, thank you so much for coming back on the show. 
Thank you, Connor. Great to be back. Jeff, I understand that you were inspired to research our topic today after listening to episode three on our podcast named Major Questions for the Major Championships with our special guest, Bill Williams. But something about that discussion didn't sit well, and you dove into the research. Tell us a little bit about how you went about the research. Well, I approached the research in this way, um, the same way I approached the research with Ben Hogan. And in fact, researching Ben Hogan is when I first started to try to figure out which were you know, the most important tournaments, you know, which were the, 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 what I guess you'd call the Grand Slam majors, the most important tournaments, and, you know, which were, and what were important tournaments and may have been called majors, but really weren't in that top strata. So I'd already been doing that work at the time of your podcast, but, you know, in, in the intervening couple of years, it's almost become an obsession of mine. And uh, in, the, in the last couple of months uh, in particular, I've dove into it. And um, even over this past weekend, you know, after we talked on Friday, I had uh, some different thoughts about how to approach it. And I found uh, some more very compelling, uh, you know, testimony from um, the past. So my go-to source is primarily newspapers.com. And I can research uh, the sports pages going you know, back to the 30s and before. And then I also like to look at uh, any you know, sort of historical you know, survey texts um, that were published uh, during that period. Perfect. And let me just ask you, roughly, how much time did you dedicate in, in researching the answers to questions Bill and I raised? Oh, hundreds of hours. Hundreds, hundreds. of hours. That's why we're, we're hearing about this. In episode 54 instead of episode four, it really took that much time. Well, you know, you have to go through the newspapers going back several years. And if you search for major, you get thousands of hits for Major League Baseball. (laughs) Absolutely, you do. If you search for a Grand Slam, you get lots of stories about baseball where someone's hit a Grand Slam or Grand Slams in tennis, or Grand Slams in racing. You know, Grand Slam, you know, basically means a sweep of, you know, of a group of, you know, related important events. So, you know, there were Lawson Littles, you know, amateur Grand Slam, they talk about. So a lot of it was just, uh, you know, digging it out. Yeah, I totally get that. I mean, as someone who who's basically sleeps in newspaper.com, I don't, it is it's it is unbelievable to dive into research there, but you can you, gosh, you get taken down so many different rabbit holes. I mean, how many times are you researching something and you see something totally different but equally mm-hmm. as exciting and right. then you go down that that rabbit hole. Yeah. It's, you know, it's 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 a great way to research if you've got the time. That's so true. You definitely need the time. Uh, Well, I'm sorry that episode three caused you to spend hundreds of hours of your time to correct us. But uh, and it's even equally bad. It's too bad that we've lost Bill Williams earlier this year, because I think this would have been a fascinating debate on the podcast. At the heart of that debate, when did the Masters become a major championship? And perhaps second to that, did Arnold Palmer, as legend claims, effectively create the professional Grand Slam in 1960, on a flight to the UK with Bob Drum. I, for the record, in episode three, echoed those comments that Bill made and look forward to be put in my place. 
I have also suggested that we name this podcast How I Was Wrong in Episode 3. <laughs> You're a big man, Connor. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, before we dive into the heavy lifting, Jeff, we, we all know that the Masters was initially and officially called the Augusta National Invitational. And we've been led to believe that that name, the Masters, came about years later. You say not so. Please share what you found in your research. Well, I, when I was going back to uh, research um, you know, some of these questions like you know, what the strength of field was, what, you know, what was the public view of the tournament uh, back to 1933 when um, the tournament, the proposed tournament was first announced, I noticed that in a number of the stories, they were referring to the event as the Masters and not just the Augusta National Invitation. So, you know, one of the things I did over the weekend was look at newspapers.com by year and do a search to see um, what was the relative number of mentions of the Masters uh, or Masters Invitational or Masters Tournament versus the Augusta National Invitational or just the Augusta Invitational. And what I found was, you know, pretty surprising. In 1934, I got one hit for Augusta National Invitational. I got over 100 hits for some combination of Augusta Invitational or Augusta, you know, National. What I got for Masters Tournament or Masters Invitational was over 2,000. In 1934? 1934. Whoa. Yeah, that is crazy. And what was interesting is many times Masters, as a Masters tournament or Masters Invitational, it was written Masters S apostrophe. And and that is important because, you know, the story goes that Clifford Roberts liked the name Masters, but Bobby Jones objected. And his specific objection was, he didn't want people to think that he was the master and this was his tournament. And so hence what, the, and that's know, what the apostrophe would essentially mean. It's the master's right. tournament, right? Yeah. Yeah. Jones didn't want people to think it was master apostrophe S. He wanted it to be the master's tournament, with the masters being those who were invited. And you know, and from the beginning, the intention was to only invite you know, elite players from uh, the U.S. and abroad, amateur and professional. And so what we found, what I said, what I found to my surprise is, you know, until, you know, through 1938, you know, the number of mentions of masters in press coverage versus Augusta Invitational was... 15 to 1, 10, 15 to 1. 15 Masters to Augusta National Invitational 1. Yeah. Wow. And and each time, each time is it, I, I just, I'm curious here, each time is it M-A-S-T-E-R apostrophe S, or were there a combination of, you know, the apostrophe and without the apostrophe? Well, there was never Masters apostrophe S. That's what Jones didn't want. What but what these writers were respecting is that it be the master's S apostrophe. 
So with masters referring to the players. And that and, was that spelled out in newsprint? Masters oh yeah. with the S apostrophe. Absolutely. Interesting. Absolutely. The Masters Invitation or the Masters Tournament with the apostrophe at the end of the word Masters. What, what kind of ownership would that have? Would that I mean, not to get into the, the semantics of it, but would that mean that the players were the Masters? Yes. Okay. Oh, absolutely. That, that was the whole intent, you know, to have uh, a group of the master golfers at this, that, at this event. You know, I find that fascinating, Jeff. I really do. Uh, because I, I mean, I'm thinking of all the times we've seen uh, the Masters logo, and it's, it would be near impossible for us to imagine apostrophe in the Masters after seeing it all these years, right? Agreed. Agreed. So how did that transition? Before we get into whether it was a major or not, how, did, when, how and when did that transition from the apostrophe to without the apostrophe to the official title of the, the, the championship being Augusta National Invitational to effectively the Masters? In 1939, uh, they adopted a uh, Masters tournament and without the apostrophe. And... You know, all reference to the Augusta Invitational disappeared in 1939. But what you're saying, essentially, unofficially, it was already being called the Masters from the beginning. Yes. Overwhelmingly, it was being called the Masters. And essentially, Bobby Jones just, you know, relented. He capitulated to uh, what was de facto uh, the name used to identify the tournament. And just, hey, guys, lose the apostrophe and I'm good with this. <laughs> well, Could it have been yeah. that simple? Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. You know, I don't know why they dropped the apostrophe. You know, since the apostrophe was clearly important, um, but they did. So that's maybe that's something to research if there's any source you know, to find that. No, you know, and I love that because I think uh, Lore would say that um, it's the opposite that that in the early days of golf it was Augusta National Invitational and the Masters came about in 1939 or later, and so it's it's great that you actually have done the research on this and mm. have actually kind of reversed the course. I'm a little bit terrified to uh, how wrong I'm going to be coming up in all these points I'm about ready to make. Okay, well, <laughs> well, well, well. In fact, uh, in August 8th, 1933, there's a story in the Atlanta Constitution. And it's about it's one of the first announcements that, you know, this tournament is being contemplated. And it reads, Bob Jones has agreed to re-enter competitive golf for this annual invitational master's tournament, only in the event he is one of the groups selected by sports writers, August 1933. And what this indicates is at that time, they were thinking about having sports writers select the field, ultimately in the first year, you know, Jones and a committee selected the field, and then that was in 34. And then after that, they went to sort of a set formula criteria to, to minimize the politicking for Im- invitations. And I think, didn't you mention also in your research that Jones was fine being in the field so long as the sports writers named him to the field? Is that correct? Or was that part of well, that? Well, that, that, that's what it says here, but I, I don't think that's what actually happened. I think, uh, you know, there, there was some, I, I remember saying, well, he'll play if the committee invites him. Well, I think people realize without Jones, the level of interest in the event really wouldn't be uh, nearly what it would be 
So, you know, I think it was pretty much a lot that Jones was going to play. Well, I mean, to that point, I mean, who wouldn't pick him? I think, actually, I know in the initial uh, Augusta National Invitational or Masters that he was the favorite for the field. I think we talked a little bit about that before, too. I think he was mm-hmm. a six-to-one favorite. <laughs> and uh, I think you made the joke of, you know, that was a that was a fool's bet seeing how he hadn't really played competitive golf for four years. Well, it's, it's interesting, and people didn't learn their lesson. He, um, in 35 there was a lot of discussion about him being the favorite and that, you know, he, in 35, since it wasn't the inaugural Masters, he'd have more time to practice and play and prepare for the tournament. And, you know, he didn't that. And so, so there was more hope that didn't work out. In 36, sort of same things. Oh, Jones is playing great. Jones is going to do it this year. That didn't work out. So, you know, um, hopes the hope was that he would um, return and win, but you know he never did. His best finish, I think, was tied for thirteenth in the in the nineteen thirty four edition. Yeah, I, I always tell people when it comes to uh, betting and and betting lines, uh, you know, Vegas doesn't build those massive casinos losing bets. <laughs> you know, so when you see that that easy favorite, I mean that that was easy money for Vegas. That was easy money for them. Well, to go back to your point about, you know, we've, we've all thought for years and years that um, it, the Masters was known as the Augusta National Invitational until 1939. Uh, I saw in an article written by Herbert Warren Wind in 1962, uh, there's a book that you can buy that has all of uh, Wind's uh, stories of the Masters tournament, starting with 1954, where he wrote an article that appeared in a dummy issue of Sports Illustrated. It was in that was an issue that was circulated to um, prospective advertisers. Yeah, the advertisers, yeah, that's great. One. Right, but in '62, um, uh, Wind writes, you know, incidentally, uh, the Masters began modestly as the Augusta National Invitation Tournament, and to, to calling itself the Masters only after Grantland Rice had introduced the name and everyone else had taken it up. And, and what, you know, what we see from the newspaper reporting is it was being called the Masters pretty much from day one. Yeah. So another kind of urban legend or yes. whispers that have been passed down through time and have become fact. Exactly. Let's start this debate on when the Masters became a major. And let's mm-hmm. start at the end this time. Let's start with the conception or perhaps the misconception that Arnold Palmer created the professional Grand Slam consisting of the Open, U.S. Open, the PGA Championship, and the Masters in 1960 while on a plane to the U.K. with Bob Drum. Let's start there and work backwards. Fact or fiction, Arnold Palmer devised the professional Grand Slam in 1960. What's your take on that story? Uh, That's not true. Not true. And we're going to get into that, right? We're going to dive into a dissection of how that's not true. Yeah, it, you know, it becomes obvious as you look over the years um, when, when you see, you know, how the, the different tournaments are characterized, you know, in the press and uh, how and when is the term grand professional grand slam used? And, you know, the Masters and the other three tournaments were grouped together as a defined set of the most important tournaments in golf 
as far back as the 1930s. And the term uh, applied to someone trying to sweep those events was professional Grand Slam. Again, going back to, um, I think, the earliest instance uh, I found was in 1932. We can run through that, but certainly you're right. If you go to the Internet and search, you know, uh, Arnold Palmer and the Grand Slam, you'll see things that say on a flight across the Atlantic, Arnold invented the modern Grand Slam. You see it in modern golf periodicals. Yes, and uh, it's in Arnold Palmer's biography, autobiography. Yeah, he says that he was sitting on a plane going to the UK with Bob Drum, and he said, "I well, I said casually over my drink, why don't we create a new Grand Slam?" And that flight took place after he'd won the U.S. Open at Cherry Hills. Yeah, I, I tell I, I will tell people right now if you want to just know how prevalent this myth is in modern culture. Just Google seven things you didn't know about the Masters. I think it's a golf magazine article for a couple of years back. And it that is, I think, number seven. So it's prevalent. It's out there. We're going to discuss it. But let's let's dive into Bill Williams' argument. On our third episode, Bill Williams argued that the Masters was not a major until 1960. And his argument was based on the following criteria. And we're going to hit each one of these criteria and and let you put up your research against it. Number one, strength of field. Number two, the player's feelings about the golf tournament. Number three, media coverage. And number four, finally, Arnold Palmer effectively made it a major in 1960. And until that point, it was a major tournament, but not a major championship. Anything I'm missing before we dive into each point? Nope, that covers the waterfront. Okay. So let's dive in uh, to some of the objections we had in episode three on the podcast. Uh, one of the major contentions, pun intended, uh, mm. by Bill was that the argument of the Masters' strength of field. How would you counter Bill's argument that the Masters for decades had a weak field? Well, I've uh, gone back to the time and I've seen how it's described. And you know, certainly the intention and the reporting was really the polar opposite. In December of 33, um, when the tournament was formally announced, the intention was that there assembled the greatest golfers in the world and that it would literally be a master tournament. Uh, And also the outstanding golf writers would would attend. Uh, And uh, just prior to the event, in a write-up by Henry McLemore of the United Press, He said that uh, Jones is coming back to competition and he's coming back the hard way. The field of the Masters tournament was handpicked by none other than Bobby himself. And the roster of 64 names reads like a roll call of the greats. Oh, wow. That's telling right there. And then there was a article in the New York Times that Jones has come back and he faces a brilliant field. Uh, And as you noted in in the in the first podcast, that there were some notable names missing, uh, which included Johnny Goodman and Gene Sarazen and Tommy Armour. In the first one, 1934. In the first one, yes. But that piece concludes the field otherwise is first class, including all the pro leaders of the winter circuit. Interesting. So it's basically called an all-star field, an elite field. Uh, It's always had the field of professionals and amateurs. It's called the finest field. 
unbelievable mentions of the talent of the field, would you say? Okay. Prolific? Well, let, well, let's go to 1935. Uh, here it is. Bobby Jones is, is taking seriously his plans for the Battle of the Stars over the especially designed course Augusta National Golf Club. Clifford Roberts expects a field of about 75 outstanding players. Alan Gould, Associated Press, April 2nd, 1935. Besides bringing together the finest field available for the climax of the winter tournament with as much class and more color than a national open championship, the second annual Augusta National Invitational revives a keen rivalry between Sarazen and Jones. This year's field of 60 players is stronger than the 1934 entry. Okay, nice. Very telling. Bill, one of Bill's contentions also is uh, the weak part of the field during the wartime years, specifically, I believe, 1941, 42, somewhere around there. Well, what he said was... um, I think he said, yeah, nobody played in the 42 Masters. Actually inaccurate. He said that in 1942, last time played before the war, 42 entered, two withdrew, so only 40 players. I actually found 41. Then he says... Because most people were off serving their country, not the best in the world were intendants, other than Hogan, Nelson, and Sneed. Uh, other than those three, the field was really a bunch of oldies. So how can you label that as a major championship is uh, beyond my comprehension. That was an exact quote. Correct? Pretty much an exact quote. In fact, in 1942, very few of the American professionals had entered the service. At the time of the Masters, only two notable pros were in the service. Uh, Porky Oliver, who had the misfortune of being drafted in March of 1941, and Vic Gezi, who enlisted uh, sometime uh, before the Masters. You know, there were some notable absences of players who weren't in the service, including Horton Smith and Clayton Hefner and Johnny Buller and Dick Metz. But, you know, of the 41 starters, you know, there are 29 who can't be described as oldies. You know, 26 of them were in the top 25 in either, you know, 41, 42, or 46. You know, those were players like, you know, uh, Herman Barron, Jimmy Demerit, Lloyd Mangrum, Jug McSpadden, you know, in addition to Nelson, Johnny Palmer, Henry Pickard, Tony Penna. You know, really the only oldies were about seven players who were, you know, um, over 35. So it was really not that much different than the fields that uh, preceded it. So you, what you're saying is essentially across the board, it had some of the best fields of major championships. It might have not had the same depth, but at the very top of the field, they, they were taking the elite players and making this an elite major championship. Right. Is that the argument? Right, yeah. right. There was um, somewhere I saw the, um, and we'll get, well, we'll get, well, here, well here's a, uh, a good quote. In 1937, a writer named Claire Burke wrote an article, and uh, it was about uh, Horton Smith. He says, everything that can be said about the greatest performers in the game of golf can be repeated concerning Horton Smith, except that he never has won the National PGA, the British, or National Open titles. However, that that Smith is a master golfer 
is shown by the fact that he has won two of the four Masters Championships played over Bobby Jones's famed Augusta National Course. Now, here's the kicker. From a competitive standpoint, this tournament probably is the stiffest in the world. While the field is not as large as the major Open Championships, the entries are hand-picked from the top strata of amateur and professional golfers. That is a solid quote. That helps make the argument when they go right to the point of the question you're asking, isn't it? Yep. Anything you want to add before we jump into how the players felt about the Masters? Let's move on. Okay. Uh, So another major contention by Bill was that the players knew it wasn't a major. Or better said, if we asked them today, they would say it wasn't a major during the early days of the Masters. What did you discover from the research? Well, I, I, I didn't find anything in 1934 in particular, but in 1935, after Saracen won it, uh, and, you know, he said, my victory at Augusta meant more to me than any I have gained outside of an Open Championship. Wow. And then, you know, a bit later in May, he was talking about how he was going to go for a repeat of his double in 1932. In 1932, he won the British Open and the U.S. Open. And he said he wanted to do that again. And he said... You know, sort of finish that by saying the Augusta National, the National Open, and the British Open, that would be some sort of a grand slam, wouldn't it? Whoa, when, when is this? May 29th, 1935. 1935. Gra- the grand slam is dropped officially from Gene Saracen. Yep. Interesting. What, what else What else did you find? What other player comments? Well, in 1936, on- uh, Saracen had a, there was a preview article in 1936 where Saracen said um, he thought he was coming to the end of his you know, peak competitive career and he's going to put everything into a last attempt to win the American and British Opens. But the article concluded that Saracen emphasized that he intended to concentrate on the Augusta National, the American, and the British Opens in 1936. And in 1936, he's speaking about the end of his career, and he is how old then? 34. (laughs) Right? Can you imagine 34-year-old saying that? I mean, how old's Dustin Johnson? He's got to be around. He's got to be that or maybe slightly older than that. But you cannot imagine Anybody saying that, I mean, that's just how much the times have changed, right? right? But it's amazing. 1936, at the age of 34, he's wrapping up his career, and he wants to focus on the Masters. And later in 1936, he took a trip to Australia, and he'd last been there in 1934. And he wrote an article for the Sydney Morning Herald, and it begins, My greatest success since my last visit to Australia was in the Masters Tournament, of 1935 at Augusta, Georgia. Uh, The tournament is restricted to winners of the American and British major championships and the first 20 leading players in the United States of America, open championship. Consequently, it is a difficult matter even to be a competitor in in this event, which although a comparatively, comparatively new tournament is second in importance only to our national open. Well, there you go. But there have been some that have said that the Masters effectively became a major with the shot heard around the world, which was a Gene Saracen's double eagle. In 35. 
Yeah, in 1935. I think I, I definitely think uh, the fact that Sarazen won it, uh, won it in a playoff with the double eagle, won it in a playoff with Wood, uh, and then he embraced it so thoroughly after uh, sort of uh, not attending the first year. I, I think that uh, meant a lot, and and we actually see that reflected a little bit later when we get to 1939. Interesting. Uh, well, continue on. How did the players feel? Okay. I, I just wanted to ask that question because we were talking about Gene Sarazen. I think you know, getting through this far, uh, I, I think maybe we should turn to the um, uh, the next topic, which is how did the press view it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There is one more. There is one more I had just for the players. In Byron Nelson's autobiography, uh, he writes that the Masters was considered a major tournament when he won it in 1937. And and that had special significance to him because he felt that it uh, was one of the primary reasons that he was selected for the Ryder Cup team which had been a goal of his uh, beginning in 1935, uh, but he didn't think uh, he'd achieve it so quickly. So from Nelson's perspective, 1937, you know, as he put it, the Masters was already considered a major tournament in the golf world. Yeah, that's fitting. And who's not going to listen to Byron Nelson? Let's jump in, just like you said. So let's get into how the media, how did the media treat the Masters? Did they treat it? Effectively, I guess my question is, did they treat it like a U.S. Open or did they treat it like the L.A. Open? Well, let me first start with the 1932. And because really the question is not only when did the Masters become a major, but when did the U- when did the Western Open drop out? Sure. Yeah, that's a uh, great question. So maybe refresh people a little bit that don't know the story of the Western. Give them a little bit of story on the Western and its thoughts as a major and then how it maybe it fell out. If, if you look at the you know papers and stories from in the 1930s or say a year-end review, uh, the year-end review would list as the major tournaments, the U.S. Open, uh, the British Open, the Western Open, perhaps the Canadian Open. And you know, there was a belief that the Western Open was one of the major championships of the United States. And you would you would see that in that reporting. And but what wasn't clear is was it in the absolute top tier? And what I what I found was in uh, 1932, uh, Gene Saracen first won the British Open, he took the US Open. The next tournament was the Western Open, and it was taken by Walter Hagen. However, you know, despite that, press reports began to appear that if Sarazen were to win the PGA, that would be the professional counterpart to Jones's Grand Slam. And much of the much of the coverage, much of the preview coverage for the PGA was Saracen's efforts to prepare to complete this triple. And, you know, and, you know, and for example, uh, Saracen declined to play in the Canadian Open because he wa- didn't want to play in any major events or any, you know, any tournaments until he got to the PGA. And you know, the Canadians were very disappointed because they wanted to see him complete a grand slam of national titles, the U.S. Open, 
the British Open and the Canadian Open. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, when um, uh, Sarazen got to the PGA, um, he, he failed. Uh, he failed even to qualify for the PGA, strangely enough. But you know, that was the first instance I found where three tournaments open to professionals were, you know, grouped together and categorized as comprising the professional Grand Slam, uh, the British Open, the U.S. Open, and the PGA Championship. You know, if we get to, you know, let, no, let's talk about the Masters and how. Yeah, let me let me rephrase my question. So what evidence do we have from media sources that the Masters was in fact a professional major championship and one of the four major championships comprising the Grand Slam prior to 1960? That's probably a more effective way for me to ask that question okay. of you. Well, I, you know, I, I've mentioned how uh, Sarazen started to tout it. Uh, in you know 1935, that you know the, the Masters, the National, the British Open, that would be some kind of Grand Slam, and then the following year, and he said that it would is second only to the National Open. Also in 1936, the, the article appeared in the Chicago Tribune, and you know it was written that this is uh, the Augusta National and the Masters event were built three years ago and have grown within that short short period to the status of golf's greatest all-star show. So we get to 1937, and we see some evidence that the Masters has been elevated, you know, uh, beyond the opinion of um, Gene Sarazen, uh, where we have at the first of the year, uh, January 1st, Harry Grayson, another well-known sports writer, writes that Harry Cooper has won neither the United States Open, British Open, the PGA, nor the Masters. But the English-born professional generally is considered the foremost golfer of his day. Now, the, and the, the implication of that is the top events open to a professional, the U.S. Open, the British Open, the PGA, and the Masters. And despite not having won any of those, Harry Cooper is still considered one of the top golfers. Now let's go. So he's singling out the four majors as we know them today and just saying, listen, he's, he hasn't won these, but he's still a great champion. And it's really signifying like, listen, this is essentially the grand slam. These are the four major championships that each professional weighs their career. And he's included the masters and he's excluded the Western Open. Yeah. 1937. That 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 was January 1st, 1937. Wow. And in May, uh, Claire Berkey of the uh, Pittsburgh Press uh, writes a, a little profile of uh, Sarazen. And he says, uh, as long as major golf champions are played and Gene Sarazen is able to play in them, most of the contestants, critics, and fandom at large look upon a chunky little warrior as the man to beat. That circumstance is easily explained. It seems that more often than not, Sarazen has won them, although this is an exaggeration. Yet, his conquests have been many and have included all the big ones. The British Open, U.S. Open, National PGA, and the Masters Championship. Wow. Oh, that's great. May 1937. May 1937. Now, now, what, now what, what kind of confirms this is in 1939. What happened in 1939 is Craig Wood lost the U.S. Open in a playoff to 
uh, Byron Nelson. And that started people writing that uh, Craig Wood had lost the four major golf championships all in playoffs. So, for example, uh, article in June 1939 by Dylan Graham. Craig Wood is one of the two men who have had their hands on the world's four major golf championships. Wood couldn't hold them. Gene Saracen won them all. The U.S. Open, the British Open, the U.S. PGA, and the Augusta National Masters. Wow. So So that's pretty, I'd say that's fairly definitive. I mean, when they list them, that's even better, right? right. And And then he also, in the same article, talks about Harry Cooper. You know, it says about Harry Cooper, he's been as far as the semifinal, the PGA Championship, and he was leading it in the, um, uh, one of the U.S. Opens, uh, but he lost. Uh, he won the, uh, I guess that was the PGA. He says he's won the Western Open and the Canadian Open, but the big ones have always gotten away from him. So, you know, here the author is signaling out the Western Open and Canadian Open as important tournaments, but not as important as those other four. If we are to believe that the Western was a major championship, its demise is clearly stated somewhere between 1932 and 1937. Correct. Is that, would that be fair? Somewhere in well, that and, time? And, or, yes, for sure. I mean, there, there were people who still called it a major, and they called it a major into the 1950s. But whenever um, the conversation was about the top tournaments, you know, say specifically in the context of a professional Grand Slam, yeah, it was excluded. That's post 1932, or are you? That's uh, uh, well, that's post 1939. One of the implications for that. Uh, not to get too far off topic uh, topic here, but if it was decided that the Western was a major championship prior to 1932, Walter Hagen wins five more majors and has 16 to his count mm. and effectively has a Grand Slam, career Grand Slam at that, but Grand Slam. Well, I, I'm, I'm not sold that the Western was ever considered at the same level as the U.S. Open. And, and the reason is, even though it had a great field and it was an important event, it was viewed as a sectional event. And, you know, and, and you'll notice that they'll talk about the British Open. They'll also talk about the National Open. And they'll talk about the PGA as the National PGA because there were regional PGA events. Excellent point. But the PGA National event was the one considered the big one. So... You know, I'm not. I'm. I'm not persuaded that the Western, the Western, ever really should have, ever really did count as equal to the U.S. Open. So, major tournament versus major championship would that be a fair distinction? Like, I don't think Jones ever played in the Western Open. I think that would be kind of an interesting take. I, I don't think you can define it that, you know, definitively in those days. I mean, sure. it was fluid, and some people would say that, some people wouldn't. It wouldn't uh, but what you started to see um you know demonstrated in the press reports is the western open not being included in the top tier and uh, you know and it becomes very explicit you know it's implied in those 1937 articles and it becomes very explicit in 1939 uh, when craig wood 
you know, you know, missed them all. And, you know, that's that's reiterated by Grantland Rice, you know, an authority in 1940. And he says and he's talking about, you know, sort of the vagaries of winning big tournaments. And he says uh, Craig Wood has stumbled into more ragged luck than anyone in the game. Uh, Wood might have won the four major championships of golf were it not for total distribution of turf less than two inches. That's how close a few missed putts came. And it, and it sounds like the, the next piece, that next article is also about Craig oh, yeah. Wood, but it's on the on the positive side, right? <laughs> Craig Wood breaks through finally. Well, well, that was, okay. Well, well, in 1941, he does break through. And, you know, let's just to, and, and then the, the headline in April 1941 is uh, Craig Wood noses out Nelson for first place in Masters, great runner-up, finally snares first major golf championship. And, you know, there, another article goes a little bit further, and this one by Bill Bonney, and again, it's sort of celebratory that he won. And he said, you know, this was the first time in Wood's career that he has been able to take down one of the pro game's top four prizes, the U.S. and British Opens and the PGA and the Masters. Now, interestingly, Wood also wins the U.S. Open. So at that point, he has the Masters and he has the U.S. Open. So what starts to appear in the press? Wood seeks to become first man ever to score a Grand Slam in professional golf. You know, Wood, after his U.S. Open victory, Wood said he wants to win the PGA, and that was being reported as the equivalent of a Grand Slam. Uh, because they weren't traveling over, obviously, ni- what, 1941? There wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't, wasn't a British Open. Yeah, and this is 19 years prior to the date Bill kind of set and other people have set for 1960 yeah. as Arnold Palmer officially creating the four uh, major championships. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, Fred Corcoran was talking about, you know, Wood is serious about making the Grand Slam. Um, yeah, another writer, Joe Williams, the only possible Grand Slam these days, the Masters, U.S. Open and PGA. Alluding to the fact that the Open would be the other, but it's, it's not being held. And, yeah. and then once again, you know, uh, for all the years of trying, would never won a major title. Lost in 33 Open to Denny Shute, uh, the 34 PGA to Paul Runyon, the 35 Masters to Sarazen, 39 U.S. Open to Nelson. This year, he's won the Masters and the U.S. Open and has his eye on the Grand Slam. So, you know, just, you know, just to reiterate, um, you know, what what the, the pros thought, you know, it, it's, it's Ben Hogan wrote a preview article for the 1942 season, and in that article, he uh, it's, it was really sort of a, a profile in the first person that went through his career up to that point, and, and he kind of concludes with, "There's still a long road to travel. I have yet to win a national championship. I want first to win the Masters, then the PGA." I hope I can do both this summer. The National Open, of course, will have to wait until Hitler and his chums have been attended to. And it's like this, right? I mean, this isn't; these aren't a couple of blurbs no. that are before 1960. It is extremely well documented, pretty much every decade right. going up until 1960. Yeah, you will find articles where they do 
look at the Western Open in assessing a, a player's success, but when it comes to the top four events, the Western is missing. How about anybody outside of so we've we've covered Gene Sarazen's thoughts, we have Craig Wood, we have a bunch of different writers that have have queued in. What what else do we have? What other players? What other writers? Well, if we get to um, nineteen fifty, if you want to talk about what other writers think, uh, in nineteen fifty, uh, Gene Sarazen uh, published an autobiography, uh, but it was written with or presumably by Herbert Warren Wint. And on you know, page two of 30 Years of Championship Golf was the autobiography. Um, it, it says, you know, uh, I have been good enough, to, uh, you know, some of my, these rounds, he talks about having played 8,000 rounds of golf. And uh, some of these rounds have been good enough to enable me to capture the four major championships in which professional golfers compete. The American Open twice, the British Open once, the PGA Championship, the Masters once. And then further into the book, um, Sarah's and Slash Wind do an evaluation of 36 of the uh, modern Masters of Golf, as they call him, and they have a little methodology. And the methodology is the first look at the number of victories in the US Open, uh, PGA, and the Masters, which again, it says, which ranks second in importance to the Open. Then they have a column, you know, they, they have the list of names going down from top to bottom, then the four columns for the major championships, and they have other important considerations. And the column titled Other Important Consider- Competitions is designed to embrace the Western and Canadian Opens, which have all been important, the North, South, and Metropolitan Opens which were formerly of more consequence than they are today. So. Interesting. So it's really Herbert Warren Wind is basically uh, and effectively uh, separating the majors from what we might call the minor majors, yeah. right? Major tournaments, not major championships. He does so for us in 1950. Right. He, he basically lays out in one spot what you know what you can deduce by looking at the. Um, various articles over the years, but you know, isn't explicitly stated here. You know, it's laid out. Uh, even though when they talk, when Sarazen talks about um, Hogan and Nelson, he talks about their victories in the Western Open. But you know, this uh, methodology that they lay out uh, makes it clear that that event does not rank uh, at the same level as. The four others, the U.S. Open, British Open, PGA, and Masters. And, you know, the prior year in 1949 was a little bit of a repeat of 1951 because in 1949, uh, the PGA was played in May. And uh, Sneed won the Masters, then he won the PGA, and just a couple weeks later, there was the U.S. Open. So there are wasn't as much time to really um, talk up the possibilities of a grand slam for Snead, but but they, but they, it was. I mean, it was it was covered in the, in the uh, mm-hmm. press, and that uh, Snead is says he's going to try to make the U.S. Open his third major victory of the year. If he succeeds, it will be one of the most remarkable records since Jones's famed grand slam. If a triumph in the open would give the colorful 
37-year-old tourist, a professional sweep comparable with Jones's Grand Slam. That was Will Grimsley. So, you know, again, uh, the, those three tournaments were viewed as a professional Grand Slam in the United States and included the Masters. We also learned from that that only a decade later <laughs> that you can still play golf at the age of 37, unlike Gene Saracen's comments. Okay, so, you know, here, here's another example of how the players viewed the Masters you know, compared to other events. You know, after Sneed failed at the U.S. Open, where he came in second to Kerry Middlecoff, he did win the Western Open. And the newspapers covered it as winning three of four major golf titles in the U.S. So, again, here you see an example where the Western is, is called a major title. But how did Sneed view it? In 1954, Jimmy DeMerit had a TV show, and in one episode, Sneed was a guest. And DeMerit asked Sneed to talk about, you know, his, his various thrills in golf. And he you know, talks about his PGA win and his British Open win. And then he says, uh, in 1949, I won the PGA, the Masters, and was runner-up in the National Open. He's not mentioned the Western Open wonder if you've done this research, not to get off topic again, but in the Western, I'm curious, if you looked at the golf writers that list the Western as a major, if there is a Midwestern contention to those comments. I mean, I did look... That would be an interesting research, wouldn't it, though? In one year, uh, I think it was Charles Bartlett called the Western a major, and then the following year, it was ignored and so i went to see how bartlett treated it and he just he just um he just sort of screwed the issue and bartlett was a tribune, chicago tribune right probably do a little research to figure out how long that stayed around and if there was a midwestern contingent right. saying that it was a major championship there may be some explanation for years after 1932 just a thought. Not, not, to, not to cause you another 100 hours of research. That's not what I'm about. I, I, my whole goal is not to torture you, Jeff. That is not my goal. It may seem that way. Well, give me a couple more examples of, of the Masters being considered a major championship, perhaps the term of Grand Slam. I know we have a couple more in the 50s referring to Ben Hogan. Okay, well, in, well, in 1951, um, Hogan won his first ma- Masters. And here's a headline from the Baltimore Sun. Hogan completes Grand Slam of Major American Pro Links Championships. And a, an Associated Press headline. Plucky Texan completes Grand Slam of Major American Pro Golf Crowns. Uh, the 38-year-old Texan uh, had only one goal in mind, victory in the Masters. The United States Open and PGA had won Twice in the past, five times he had won the Varden Trophy for lowest stroke average. Five times he had been leading money winner among the professionals, but never a Masters in nine previous tries. So winning the Masters was a big deal to Ben Hogan yeah. in 1951 and you know, was, was uh, labeled part of the Grand Slam of major American pro crowns. And he'd already won two Westerns at that point. And, the Westerns didn't merit any mention. Yeah. And again, nine years, nine years prior to that uh, flight 
that Arnold Palmer and Bob Drum were on were not only calling the Masters a major going back, say, 44 years from Arnold Palmer's creation of the Grand Slam, professional Grand Slam, but we are refuting in hundreds of articles, some of which that you've pointed out, that not only was the Masters a major championship, but that there was such a thing as the professional Grand Slam. Right. Well, yeah, we can go to 1953, which, you know, you yeah, alluded to. Year. And, um, you know, of course, you know, Hogan won the Masters and he won the U.S. Open. And then the paper said Hogan is committed to going to Britain to be the first to win the professional Grand Slam Masters in two Opens. You know, Harry Grayson, he's sort of dissed the, the PGA, but, you know, as we know, it would have been impossible to play in the PGA and British Open. And due to scheduling, and Hogan wouldn't have played. Um, he, the PGA was match play, 36 holes a day for five days if you got into the finals. And Hogan could manage 36 holes a day once a tournament in the U.S. Open and the British Open, but not for five straight days. So, you know, his, his only shot were these three. And uh, also, um, uh, Gene Saracen said in an article written by Will Grimsley that Hogan's winning these three, the Masters, U.S. Open, and British Open, would be a feat equal to Jones's Grand Slam. And, uh, and after he did win these three, um, the September issue of Golf Digest you know, said that these victories of Hogan represented the three biggest titles in golf. And they also had a little chart titled Hogan's winning record in the major metal play championships and enlists his record in the U.S. Open Masters and British Open. Let's go to one more argument for it being a major championship. That's the Masters and a Grand Slam. Let's go to uh, the article or the book, sorry, uh, The Story of American Golf. Once again, we bring in Herbert Warren Wind uh, into the picture. You know, I can bring Wind in twice because in the in the dummy article in the 1954 um, Sports Illustrated, um, he says uh, that the Masters is second only to the National Open in prestige. Okay, and then in the story of American golf, you know, he reiterates what, you know, presumably he wrote in 1950. Uh, he's in, in this in this time in, in this. A piece he's talking about Ben Hogan in 1955, and he says, for the first time since 1948, when the agent of Hogan had begun, Ben had gone two years in a row without winning at least one of the major championships, either our Open or the British Open, the PGA or the Masters. And he lists them again. Yeah. Lists them again. So it's, what would you say, based on your research, based on newspaper.com, based on Herbert Warren Wynn and his books and writings, amongst many others, is it fair to say that we can overthrow the idea that the Masters wasn't a major prior to 1960? Yes. So let's dive into the final one then. Let's dive into the story of Arnold Palmer and that fateful flight in 1960 with Bob Drum, where... The story goes that he created the professional Grand Slam on the you know 30th anniversary of Bob Jones's Grand Slam in 1930. Okay, dive well, into that well, we, a little bit. You know, okay, so let's let's dive into something that um, 
actually was part of a conversation in February. So when was that flight? Give me a, give everyone an idea. Oh, well, what we'll, month we'll get are we to talking that. about? Okay. Let, me, let me get let me let me get to that. Let me get to that. Let, let me start with this one little anecdote before we talk about the flight. Um, in February of this year, you know, I was going back and forth on this topic with someone I think you know, uh, Graham Park on Twitter. Absolutely. And uh, Graham says, you know, in this conversation of, you know, when these events were majors, when was the Grand Slam invented, uh, Graham seems to be on the side that, at least at this time, I think he's changed his mind, but at least at this time, he was saying he was, you know, going along with the idea that the Grand Slam was invented by Palmer in 1960. And he says in this- play a major part in that. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he says in this tweet to me, I wonder when Gary Player won at Muirfield in 1959, if he thought back at the time, I won a major. He obviously knew he had won a big one, but he didn't think it was a major. Gary Player then responds, you know, one of the nice things of Twitter. Absolutely. Yeah. If you tag somebody, sometimes you get the response. It's fantastic. And he says, Graham, when I won the Open at Muirfield in 1959, I said to my wife, we have won our first major and immediately set my mind to winning all four majors or the Grand Slam. I don't think Drum or Arnold had anything to do with this at all. Happy to answer. Lovely. My, Thank you, Mr. Player, if you're listening today. Okay, so let's, so let's go to 1960. And uh, the, the famous flight to the UK uh, took place uh, a couple days after the U.S. Open was completed. The U.S. Open was completed on Saturday, uh, June 18th. You know, I believe from the news reports, you're not 100% sure, but I believe on that Sunday, the 19th, a drum and a Palmer flew to New York. And then either late that night or early the next day, they went on to um, uh, the, the UK. So what do we have that precedes that flight? Well, interestingly enough, after Palmer won the Masters in May, uh, there were a couple of stories that appeared, and, and one of them appeared in what was labeled the Tribune Wire Services, and it quotes um, Palmer as saying, I want, I want to win those other three so much I can taste them, referring to his quest of the professional Grand Slam, the National Open, the British Open, and the PGA Championship, in addition to his Masters crown. And, and then one of the articles written by Mercer Bailey says, but Palmer was too modest to mention Grand Slam. And so here we have an instance where Palmer is saying, I want to win these four events. And he doesn't call them a Grand Slam, but everyone knows, I mean, the people who he's talking with refer to us as the Grand Slam. I mean, they, they know that these are the top four. The, the implication is they know that these are the top four events. And if anyone wore, won them all, it would be the equivalent of a professional Grand Slam, just as people were saying that in 49 and 41 uh, with Sneed and, and um, Craig Wood. Uh, then we get to, you know, and then, then, then probably inspired by that article, Bill Lee of the Hartford Current, uh, basically describes the current professional equivalent to Jones Slam, you know, the 
the two opens. Preceding the, the flight, and, yeah. And, but again, the, you know, two months before the flight, and he also notes that the Masters is cherished almost as much as the U.S. Open. The week of the Open, um, there are preview articles, and uh, on June 12th, there's one by the Associated Press, there's another in the Pittsburgh Press, and they both say Palmer is going for the second leg of the Grand Slam. On June 14th, the Saturday Evening Post starts to advertise for its June 18th issue. And in the sports page is they're advertising a, a feature article uh, that's uh, a first-person profile by Arnold Palmer, uh, co-written by Will Grimsley. And the title of that article is I Want That Grand Slam. And in that article, you know, Palmer in the first person says, I've always wanted to win. I, I, growing up, I wanted to win Bob Jones's Grand Slam. Then I found out to do that, I'd have to remain an amateur and there's no way I could afford to do that. So then I turned my sights to winning the professional Grand Slam. And that's what I hope to do this year when the four biggest tournaments available to a professional, the U.S. Open, British Open, PGA, and Masters. So that was published that week. Then the day after uh, Palmer won, on the 19th, in the stories that were covering his U.S. Open victory, many of them included his goal of going for the professional Grand Slam and that he was shortly heading off to the UK. And among those writers who wrote that you know, Palmer was going to be heading off to Britain to complete present day golf's Grand Slam was Bob Drum on the Pittsburgh Press, who wrote the coverage of the US Open. So here you, you know, and then as we discussed earlier, they didn't go, they didn't get on that flight until either the night of the 19th or sometime on the 20th. So prior to that flight, you know, well covered in the press was Palmer's desire to capture the Grand Slam, you know, as early as April, and then, you know, fully documented in the Saturday Evening Post that had been published earlier in the week. And Bob Drum himself, in an article that he wrote on the 18th, that was published on the 19th, uh, includes that Palmer is looking for the present day golf's Grand Slam. So, you know, how could that conversation that allegedly took place take place if both of them were already fully aware of, um, you know, Palmer's goal to win a Grand Slam and what those four events were? And what were. they were, right? So, how do you, what's your take on that? How did this story come about? Oh, you know. You know I you know I don't I obviously I don't know I I am very much aware how easy it is for people to conflate things in their mind, especially years mind. later. Especially years later, and you know I don't I don't know I mean it's anybody's guess you know perhaps you know clearly he and Drum both knew about it well before the you know he won the U.S. Open so. You know, maybe they did have drinks and talked about it at some time. And, and you know, and maybe, and maybe in the flight to the UK, they said, okay, um, you really got to talk this up with the British press. 
you know, because because that's one of the things that Palmer does say in his autobiography was that Drum spent a lot of time, you know, pushing this idea to the British press. Um, and, and, and actually, actually, Arnie does give himself a little bit of an escape hatch uh, when he talks about um, Drum. He does finish that section by saying something to the effect that I'm not entirely certain Drum was the first to write about the idea of a modern Grand Slam, though. Uh, and then he says that's because when we stopped in Port Marnock en route, I'm certain he spread the idea of the new professional Grand Slam among his colleagues in the British press. So one of them was probably the first to actually write about the concept. Still, it was Bob who effectively first planted the seed that grew, that later grew. So you know, so maybe it's maybe it's Palmer trying to give you know, drum, you know, uh, you know, some kudos here you know, for being his friend. I mean, I, I certainly think some of that is going on with people, you know, attributing the Grand Slam to Palmer and, you know, and not looking at the factual record with uh, a little closer eye or a more yeah, critical 44 eye. years of, of, you know, articles you know. that precede it. I mean, you really, did, I mean, you did hundreds of hours of a deep dive, obviously, to get there. But what do you think? So let's give you know Palmer his due here. Uh, though he did not create the Grand Slam, he didn't make the Masters or the PGA Championship a major championship, as <laughs> Bill alluded to. Uh, but he did do something quite great, which was popularize yeah. the idea of Americans going over to the Open Championship to compete for, quote unquote, the professional Grand Slam. Though not created, he definitely popularized this idea of which, you know, since then, since 1960, Americans have flocked uh, a lot of times early on at their own expense, not being able to recover all of their expenses from that trip because the Open Championships uh, pay wasn't as great. But they did so because of really, obviously, Sneed first. You go way back, obviously, Jones-Hagen. But you have Sneed, you have Ben Hogan, and then this kind of vacuum for a while and and then mm-hmm. Arnold Palmer starts this parade of major champions and great players from the United States traveling to the UK to compete mm-hmm. for the oldest major championship. Right. I, I think that's all exactly right. Um, you know, when Palmer went to the British Open in 1960, I think he was pretty much the only American golf star in the field. Um, they, they hadn't been going. They hadn't really, you know, since um, uh, Hogan's victory in 1953, you know, I'm not sure how many of the um, uh, top U.S. pros went to uh, the British Open. Yeah. I so, know Stranahan went as an amateur many years. He was one of the... Stranahan went often. Yeah. Johnny Blow went often. Um, but, um, I mean, Mangrum went over with Hogan in 1953, but he didn't play very well. But the, the focus had clearly shifted you know, to golf in the United States. And Palmer and presumably Mark McCormick saw a marketing opportunity in the UK. And they also had the ability to travel over there and back and, you know, with on a jet plane. And, you know, really, you know, once this genie was let out of the bottle, you know, uh, on June 19th and June 20th, I mean, it got an awful lot of coverage, you know, much, much more so 
in any of those previous years, which probably explains why, you know, no one no one even remembers that Craig Wood was talked about as going for a Grand Slam in 1941, or Sneed was going for a Grand Slam in 1949. Um, I mean, and, and in fact, in 1951, if Hogan had wanted to enter the PGA or had wanted to end, enter the British Open, he could have gone for a Grand Slam. But after he won uh, the U.S. Open, you know, following his Masters, when he said, I, you know, I'm, I'm shutting it down for the rest of the weird year, so there's no reason to talk about a Grand Slam. But, you know, from that, you know, in, in 1961, again, you know, with the Masters, some talk of the Grand Slam, uh, 1962, when uh, Palmer won uh, the Masters, talk of the Grand Slam. 1963, Jack wins the Masters. Um, you know, so there there was a lot, a, a lot more attention was paid to this topic, and it and it also helped develop elevate and create more interest in uh, the British Open. Well, I tell you, I, I think uh, I think it's fair to say I've eaten my crow. I think we, we're finishing up How I Was Wrong in Episode 3. <laughs> Maybe the renamed of this podcast. But to be fair, what did I say, Jeff, in Episode 3? You said, I really haven't studied this topic in depth. This is my opinion. And I think you also went on to say, you know, we welcome anyone who has studied this topic more, you know, to come back and tell us what they found. And Jeff made us eat crow. <laughs> Never give Jeff the opportunity and hundreds of hours to do research, folks, because you're probably not going to out-research him. Well, that's the kind. I, I tell you what, Jeff, this has been such a great episode. I, I think we can put it to rest. Let me just ask you this as we go out. I think we've satisfied a lot of people that the Masters was a major championship well before 1960. Uh, I made the argument with Bill that the PGA Championship was always a major in 1916 because it was the national championship of the Professional Golfers Association. But let me ask you this, and whether we have facts or, or otherwise, when do you consider the Masters a major championship? Like, Where do you draw that line? Do you give them 1934 or is it 1935? What do you think? You know, I, I don't want to put... Oh, a, you're on there. I've got you right okay. now. <laughs> well, you know, it's, the thing is, you know, in 1939, they were calling, and in 1937, even, at the beginning of 1937, they were referring to the Masters as one of the top four. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and they did it, so it had to happen in, say, 36 or 37, because, you know, in 39, they were giving Sarah's in credit for having won a, a, as a major in 35 and uh, Craig Wood, you know, coming in second in 35. So, you know, sometime in there. Sometime 30, in the you know, earliest days. I think it was definitely after Sarah's and won it. Yeah. And whether it was 36 or 37, you know, I, I think you could even say 36 because those articles – you know, um, we're, we're cropping up in 37. Well, in 36, uh, you know, Gene Saracen's essentially saying it's the most important or the second most important tournament in the United States. I mean, I think, uh, you know, whether you count 35 there or 36 based on those comments, it's definitely a, a trigger point in our history. Well, I mean, I mean, I guess you could say if, if you argue that Palmer 
made the Masters a major in 1960, why couldn't Gene Saracen have made the Masters a major in 1936? Excellent point. You're right. Because if you're calling it the major, then I assume if you're calling it in whatever that was, was that June where they were flying over to the UK? What, what, yeah. yeah, in June. So does that mean that uh, the Masters and, you know, that Masters that preceded it and the US Open weren't majors prior to making that call? I, you know, it's a cyclical argument. And here's another uh, argument along those lines. If, as was argued, the Masters didn't become a major or the PGA didn't become a major until the modern Grand Sam was created in 1960. Well, what about Bobby Jones's tournaments? Mm-hmm. He won all 13 of his majors before the Grand Slam was uh, conceived. That's true. And, you know, he, it was once he won the four events, people said, oh, okay, well, uh, this is a Grand Slam of the National Open and Amateur Championships. That's an excellent so, point, Jeff. I mean, we so talk about getting thing, retro credit. I mean, essentially, that's the ultimate retro credit, right? That once it was conceived and once it was, I'm sorry, not conceived, once it was accomplished, it became the Grand Slam, then that, you know, I guess some would argue, uh, maybe even if it's only semantics, that once you name that, that is the new Grand Slam as of that time versus looking back and awarding it to someone after the fact. Right. But you know, my counter argument to that is if any, at any point, you had said, well, what would you, at any point after the late, after 1936, 1937, you had said, well, what if, you know, this player won these four events? What would you call that? I mean, people would say, oh, well, that's the professional equivalent of the Grand Slam. Right, right. I mean, you know, calling, calling, you know, those four tournaments a Grand Slam wasn't a novel idea. It was probably the expected, the expected label. Okay, well, there's one other thing I want to address, and this is something that I've also seen recently, which, and, and, and I've heard for the first time in that podcast, and it kind of baffled me. And, you know, there was I uh, brain, a brain, it's not that, something I said, by the way. Well, uh, <laughs> well, no, actually, you did. Oh, great. You did yeah, that's great. You, or at least you seem to be endorsing Okay, fire away. I want to hear it. And, and, that, and that was the idea that... The turn, you know, this I'll quote from a, a. This is an article that appeared in April 2019 in the UK Golf Monthly, and it says, and this is I, th- I think this sentiment was pretty much reflected in the podcast. Although some events had long been described as major tournaments, major in this case was an adjective and not a noun. The term major, with an uppercase M, to describe what we now know as the four biggest events is said to date from a conversation on an aeroplane between Arnold Palmer and the journalist Bob Drum in 1960. Well, okay, so that is something that I was inspired to research. Yeah, and I believe that, was, that started. Like, I mean, I'd never heard that argument prior to Bill Williams. Right, and I, 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 searched, uh, I, you know, I searched through the newspapers, and I said it's kind of difficult because, you know, hundreds of articles show up with, you know, major meaning the major leagues in baseball. But I did find the term used prior to 1960. Uh, I found it used in an article in 1937, and Grantland Rice used it in 1948. 
you know, and in both instances, they were referring to Bobby Jones's majors. And my contention, you know, my belief is, you know, sort of, you know, the simplest explanation is in conversation, you know, it's easy to say major than to say major championship. And that is simply the shortened form. The other thing I found is nowhere in any of the descriptions of that trip did I find the term major used or any sort of reference to the two of them inventing this term. Uh, it, it didn't appear in the I Want the Grand Slam article. It didn't appear, I couldn't find it used in any articles written by Bob Drum. You know, um, either in 1960 or 61 or in 62. Uh, he referred to major tournaments, major championships, major titles, uh, major golf titles, major, the four prestige titles. But, you know, he never once used the word major. And, you know, the term major did begin appearing in the 1970s in articles, but it was almost always used interchangeably with, you know, compound uh, words like major championship. So, you know, I, I you know, I, I don't know. You see I mean, no merit there. That it, it just, that just seems like pure urban myth. I mean, sure. I can't even find, I can't, you know, with most of these myths, you can find an element of truth. But in this case, I can't even find, um, anything. Yeah. That Using all have, historical resources you have at your hands. Yeah. That, you know, I, I can't find anything that corroborates that um, this was a term that was invented on the airplane by Drum or Drum and Palmer or came into common use right after. Uh, or not even right after. I mean, it's years. Yeah, after, but I say right? not. Yeah, yeah not. Right, you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was more than it was. It was 10 years before it seemed to be <clears throat> used commonly. But again, it was used interchangeably. It wasn't. And it, it wasn't, wasn't Bob Drum per se. It was just people using it. Language yeah. evolving is basically what you're arguing. It, it, it was not used to distinguish between, um, you know, what major championships were considered, you know, post airplane flight. Right, to the right, right. Pre-airplane flight to the airplane. I love it. Great. It's great stuff. Well, I tell you, thank you so much. This has been enlightening. Uh, I always like to eat crow, especially when there is an asterisk that gives me an out. <laughs> Since I, mean, I haven't done were... the research, that's always key. But they, I mean, to that point, this is one of the great reasons I love doing this podcast because it, it, it always opens me up to bring people on the show that know more than I do. And I get to learn just like everybody else that's listening to this podcast. And to me, that's kind of the... I, I'm fortunate that I get to learn it first. I mean, of course, you've done all the research, but I get to hear it first and then, you know, put this podcast into the universe and let other people listen too. So how I ate crow is okay by me, just as long as we have the facts going forward. Well, and, and, and from my perspective, you know, I have gained a lot of knowledge since that podcast. I mean, at that time, I still hadn't figured out this sort of paradox where, you know, uh, in one year, Hogan, in 46, Hogan won the Western Open. And the headline said, Hogan wins his first major. Three months later, in August 46, Hogan wins the PGA. Headlines read, Hogan wins his first major. 
Oh, I, I, you know, no, I thought, yeah, no, there's a lot of that, right? Yeah. And, 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 and so, and, but then, you know, what clears it up is in the foreword of Power Golf, which was published in 1948. Uh, the foreword was written by Ed Dudley, and he says Hogan's first major championship was the 1946 uh, PGA Championship. And, you know, no mention of the Western, and this is Hogan's book. Yeah. And Hogan's not letting that go by. We know Hogan checked all those words in that book many times over. <laughs> been in there. So yeah. that's when this paradox started to make some sense. And then, you know, Herbert Warren wind. I mean, that was a big, like the 1950 yeah. book where it's, where it lays it out. These four, you know, the Western's important, but it's not as important as these other. Yeah. Four. That's great. Well, like I said, I, I'm I'm sorry you spent hundreds of hours researching this, but I'm so happy that you spent hundreds of hours researching this because I think we all come out learning a little bit more. Thanks for taking the time to put it together. No, thank you, Jeff. I, I'm honestly, I, I hope that I inspire you through through saying dumber things in the future that will <laughs> inspire follow up podcasts to come. Right. Thank you well, so much. Thank you. Well, now that Jeff has put me in my proper place, I'm so happy to hear that one of our earliest episodes of Talking Golf History inspired Jeff to do a deeper dive. A special thanks to our departed friend, Bill Williams, who helped kick off this debate back in 2019. This episode shines a light on the need for discussions like this one. History needs to be explored, talked about, and even debated. So many stories lie in state waiting to be found. Some in attics of old clubhouses, some in forgotten newspaper articles, others in temperature-controlled archives, and some within the memories of our parents and grandparents. We live in historic times. We end 2020 with the Masters and open 2021 with the Masters, a feat nobody could have imagined. Our children and our children's children will look back at these days in awe and wonder, just as we look back upon the early days of our beloved game. Until that time comes, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.